If Lost aired in 2019, would people still watch it in groups or just stream it alone on Netflix? Is it more common to enjoy or feel contempt towards the music your parents played around the house? Was I really watching Braveheart and Finding Nemo at the same time? Hey everyone, Austin here. On today's episode, Ken and I ponder questions just like these about how our relationship with different forms of media has evolved throughout our lives. We'll be exploring what we're calling Media Trees, a concept inspired by Ward Shelley, a New York-based artist whose vibrant experimental work inspired this retrospective study. Yeah, I know the the oil fields and the the coal mining operations. Jesus. Oh, there, there there's a there's a bunch of juxtaposition pages that are really cool. There's um, pre and post disaster flooding, mm-hmm. um, like uh, deforestation images. Uh, th- if you look on the table of contents, there is um, the kind of thematic breakdown of the book, and it has things like. Where we play, where we live, um, where we waste. Well, extract. Where we extract is my favorite right now, dude. This is a uranium mine, but I could totally put a picture of this on my wall. Look at that. Oh yeah. Oh my God, that's yeah. the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. There, I, mean, I know there, it's probably tragic for the environment, but um, where where we extract also has, um, I think it's an image of a series of uh, retired industrial ships that have been. Uh, purposefully um, shored off of, uh, I guess, a beach in India. And after they, they've they beached these industrial ships, they send teams of people out to basically just use welders um, to break down the ships to recycle the material. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty crazy. <clears throat> I'm going to adjust this mic real fast. My least favorite ones are like weird suburbs that show a thousand houses. It just makes me depressed. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I mean, like, what's... The the thing that I would say about the weird suburbs is uh, some of them are the kind of the tragic sprawl, but then other others are the kind of ideal mm-hmm. Renaissance cities, and then there's a reinterpretation of the Renaissance cities into these kind of geometric suburbs that are kind of yeah. interesting. In like oh, Dubai and look at the Forbidden City. I know. I was really surprised that the uh, not so forbidden anymore. <laughs> yeah, you can see everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was really surprised that the Imperial City in Tokyo wasn't in there as well because mm. that's the the moat system around that. I, I think maybe it, it wasn't because it wasn't as symmetrical as say the Forbidden City, mm-hmm. but it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, this is a really cool book. I I really like it. I think it's probably one of. It's a great coffee table book. It's keeping my attention. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> oh, I also, I also, because we are, um, um, I guess talking about media. How was the, how was the anthem? Oh man, the anthem was great. I really loved it. I felt like I was in, um, some just like ethereal, like ephemeral landscape of just sounds and feelings. Because like the the band we saw we saw Beirut I don't know if you know them yeah I, I feel like I've heard a couple of their like famous songs yeah I mean I don't know them particularly well either just I just went with Rob um, but they're really like 
they're really chill. Like they never, their like energy level never gets above like a six. They're just like, and then like, then they all like bring out trumpets. Like even the main, even the main singer has a trumpet. So he'd be singing the first half of the song and then they go, and he's like, go back. But it was like, it was very, I don't know. It was very relaxing. And the crowd was like very, Where'd you end up um, hanging out? Did you go down into the pit, the the main <coughs> stage area, or did you go up into the balconies? So we actually sat in the little terrace in the back. You know, oh, yeah. Next yeah. to, like, the sound guy. Uh-huh. It was actually really cool. It was, like, a perfect spot because mm-hmm. uh, we were just, like, chilling on the lawn, like, at a concert, basically. Yes. That's kind of what it was. And we didn't really feel like standing, like, right up in the middle. And it was, like, a perfect way to, to like, and you could see everything right in front of you. And I was literally sitting right next to the sound guy. So I was watching him. Um, I think he was like a member of the band almost, but he was like on these. Uh, it almost looked like he was at, had like the Adobe, um, you know that that Adobe Color Picker thing called like Cooler or something with the K. Yeah, yeah. It almost looked like he had one of those things up with the lights, mm-hmm. and he was just like playing with the lights, and you could see on a screen the plan for the. It was like blue, red, blue, 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 red, 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 and it was like yellow for like a slower song, so you could like see what he was going to do and he was basically playing the like the piano kind of thing and like but it was only with the lights so he's like matching the the keyboard guy on stage they were like had the same movements it was really cool so do you think that stuff isn't pre-recorded it's like happening mm-hmm. it's yeah, happening live their light show was live was live he was like hitting the buttons you could see him like hitting it see um megan and i we went to a bluegrass um i, I do not know the name at all but uh it was a bluegrass band in the anthem and at first, the lights weren't necessarily matching up, so we just assumed that mm-hmm. it was just their set program. But then there was like a moment about halfway through the show where the lights were very intentionally matching the beats of the music, and and it it it, it felt like the the lights were interacting with the music and and bluegrass. They're kind of jam banny, yeah. And so there there'd be no way to perfectly script right. It's just like it's 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 almost like a live light instrumentation. If it's like ninety percent correct, you know it's fine. Like if they're off a little bit, it's it's like you it's almost better because you can tell that someone's doing it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we really liked it, and it was like reasonably priced. Like the you can get like a beer for like seven fifty. Like it wasn't like a con. It wasn't like a stadium. You know, it was like a decently. It was a little overpriced, but it wasn't that bad. You know. No, 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 no. It, I, like I think the thing I'm excited about uh, is. You were hanging out by where the light guys were. Mm-hmm. There's the experience you're going to have being in the crowd, the mosh pit area up by the stage. There's like a couple of different like balcony experiences. I think I'm really interested in just going back a couple of times yeah, to just yeah. try out different areas. We should go this summer. I want to see who's playing there. Because I, I, I mean, me, me and Evelyn both came away from it like really, really liking the space a lot. So. Oh, where did you go to Happy Hour before? We went to the Brighton. It was like right there. It's perfect. Yeah. But then... um. And we like walked up and down the wharf for a little bit and I'd never really have seen the seafood um like commerce happening at night. Mm-hmm. So they they like shrimp tacos and like you know the little stands that are low. People yeah. can like oh my god, it's perfect. I want to go there like just when the weather's a little nicer and just hang out there more. But I think it's cool. I think I'm really excited for us to um finish working on the waterfront station project and for phase mm. two of the wharf to finish. So that entire kind of pedestrian corridor 
feels more complete from the waterfront station metro yeah that's the biggest problem oh, right now yeah yeah because we get dropped off in like a, in an uber because it's just like a 15 minute walk from the metro and if the, yes. fi- if, the if the 15 minute walk was you know was nice it'd be better you know it'd be it'd be better but right, get right right now the warfare much feels like an island yeah kind of trapped it's it's, it's almost being like choke holded by the the micro highway that yeah yeah it's it's but it's i mean it's kind of nice as an island though when you think about it mm-hmm. I, I mean especially when um um buzzard point happens too there's gonna be like that's gonna be a whole thing around the dc united stadium like really that whole waterfront is getting like completely redone basically yeah i think i think the intention is basically to just develop along the entire edge um cool I'm glad, I'm glad you had a good time. Yeah, it was cool. I was very happy with it. Oh, were you downstairs or upstairs in Brighton? Downstairs. downstairs. I didn't know that was upstairs. Yeah, if you walk, when you immediately walk in, if you go up the stair steps, there's kind of a mezzanine area. And sometimes it's a little bit less crowded and there's a second bar area up there. It's kind of nice. It was cool. It honestly wasn't crowded at all in the Brighton or the concert just because it was like Valentine's Day. Yeah. And everyone was kind of in a more fancy thing. I mean, some people went to a concert because it was Valentine's Day, but it was like... It didn't seem like it was, you know, overly packed. So it was cool. That's nice. You wanna you wanna jump into this? Let's do it. All right. So I think I think before we jump into the diagram that you created, which in a very compelling way breaks down a density of experiences throughout your life engaging these these different medias. I think before we jump into that, I would like to um, bring up a series of. I guess almost media tree pre- uh, precedents right, that, do it. that I've, I've experienced. Um, I think like the the genesis of this entire conversation started from just doing a quick Google search to just type in media influences, and through just a random, you know, you know when you like type in a word and you just kind of like fast scroll down Google, and then eventually something catches your eye and. Sometimes it ends up as like a Pinterest page and you get really like annoyed because it's all like locked down behind like layers of like click shields. Well, I was, I I typed in media influences and I ended up with the artist Ward Shelley, which had this amazing diagram um, of a media tree and not just kind of a, an abstract interpretation of a media tree. It was a literal little literal tree like a tree graphic uh but the way that the artist ward shelley is depicting it is he thought of the tree as an extension of his life starting out with his birth with the and the tree trunk and and as it grows up it, it expands um into these different thematic elements of television movie um music books artists and then kind of um people who um, would then be these kind of representational role models also linked to these elements as well. And you can kind of, you can track the things that have influenced him throughout his life. So early on books like Winnie the Pooh or Dr. Seuss or um, uh, like in the middle of his teen years, like the Beatles um, influencing the way he thinks about music. And then you get towards the end of his life and and things are, I, I would say like the the highest degree of density is in his kind of uh, earlier years, but then you kind of see where you can almost follow the thematic trends through his life and, and where he is kind of currently now. So cool. And, and this tree, um, I think ultimately led 
to the diagram that, that you ended up producing. But I think before we get into that, mm-hmm. uh, I just want to talk about what does it mean to uh, cata- catalog experiences in your life and, and this idea that um, throughout your existence you have a series of experiences Mm -hmm. and there's almost a point where you start to take stock or or um look back and and almost want to like understand the genesis of how you feel about things yeah i mean the the, one of the main things i've learned from this whole process is some things stick with you and some things don't but even if they don't stick with you as favorites they still influence your decisions later on what you decide to ingest or engage with you know what i mean yeah like even in this diagram i see that some of the some of the trunks are like cut off and like gray does that mean like that part of his life ended and it like didn't you know it stopped and he's no longer like what is that gray uh the far left one that that is uh television like it seems like it seems like judging from this diagram for example no meaningful television shows really influenced his overall his or her, I'm not exactly sure who this, who it actually is. Ward Shelley, I don't know. It's a company or not. Or is it an artist? Is it one guy? Is it a person? So Ward Shelley is um, a male artist okay. who's most well known for his balance house, mm. uh, which was a project where a trailer home sized modernist um, uh, kind of structural home is placed on this pivot. And mm-hmm. Ward Shelley, along with another artist, live in the house and their position relative to the house determines the tilt. Got it. And so he's very interested in this idea of what does it mean to have a direct engagement with art in and of itself. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, So, I mean, so back to that point, it's like that, that branch of television, like for some reason that stopped in 1970, you know what I mean? And you know, it, it maybe that was, you know, we're going to talk about this later, but it's like, certain types of media were very influential in certain parts of your life, right? So it seems like earlier in his life or maybe into his teenage years, like television was something that really resonated with him. And then after that, it, it, he just shifted to more movies or more books, you know, it's it, and why that happens throughout someone's life, I think is really compelling, you know? Mm-hmm. And an interesting thing that I think has influenced the way I've consumed media or or at least chased after the the consumption of media and then retroactively documented Mm. media um, was the years immediately following graduating high school. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think it was the first time in my life where I wasn't on a, what could be called, say, a assembly line track throughout life. You're you're born, Mm -hmm. uh, your parents sign you up for um, either a private or public school experience, um, and then you're essentially signed up for that experience up until... That's a funny way to word it. What's that? Your parents sign you up. You're born, your parents sign you up for school. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's part of the... Is there a sign-up process? Uh, yeah, I think it's the public mandate, but <laughs> but ultimately, um, I think, I guess in America, we capture, um, we, like we chase the ideal of, of all of us going through this kind of educational experience, right. at least all the way up until 18. And um, through kind of a series of events, I didn't start college immediately after high school. Mm-hmm. And so there was a three-year period where I ended high school, and I was just working full-time. And a strange thing happened um, 
during those years where I started to, I, I think everybody at the age of 18 and maybe like 25 and like 40, you go through these series of micro existential crises where you take stock of um, your place in the world and what you're contributing back to the world. Mm -hmm. And so these years following high school, I started to look into a whole series of individuals and lists about what it meant to live a productive life or, or engage a, a life worthwhile. And these would be things like um, looking at the greatest films of, of mm -hmm. all times or, or um, what books to read. And uh, I, I think I was in a Borders mm. uh, back when that was still a company. Oh, yeah. And I came across this book called 101 Things to Do Before You Die. And held within this book were a series of two lists. Um, and I guess to describe the book really quickly, uh, the book is 101 things of, of kind of exciting things to do, do mm. throughout your life, like go scuba dive or... Um, uh, like get married or have a kid or get a tattoo or break the law or, or bungee jump. But amongst these 101 things were these mm -hmm. two very significant lists. One was a hundred of the greatest films of all times and a hundred of the greatest books of all time. And I saw these two lists as this challenge, mm -hmm. this, this challenge to kind of absorbing that information and over the last like 10 years I revisit this list and I mm -hmm. and I consume this this um I, I like I revisit this list and will watch a movie or read one of these books and I think I'm about 80 percent of the way yeah. through I was gonna say you checked off a lot of them I know that yeah <clears throat> but what was really interesting uh in in this process was like all things um you're typically not the first one to invent something mm -hmm. or or do a process like this. And and at the same time that I was consuming this list, I was also looking at really interesting people who had created their own almost like media consumption list. And I think right. the most famous of which that I found was uh, Theodore Roosevelt um, had this really interesting correspondence with a friend where they would talk about political issues and and um, uh, um, goings on in each other's lives and 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 it at one point there is this letter between the two of them which documents um, the return letter to where a friend had asked Theodore Roosevelt for some book recommendations mm. and so this return letter is Theodore Roosevelt essentially saying to his friend, um, yeah, the Democrats are doing this and I think we should do that. And, um, these things might influence these things. And then in the next paragraph, he goes and that, and then onto the topic of, of what to read. Uh, we had, um, I guess, let me, Gosh, let me this read like, this. It's like so intense. He's so well read. So parts of Herodotus, the first and the seventh books of Theodices. Yeah. So, so after, after his kind of like kind of ramblings of, of um, I guess, directed ramblings of politics, he goes, um, you remember speaking to me about reading and especially about the kind of books one ought to read. On my way back from Oyster Bay on election day, I tried to jot down the books I have been reading for the last two years. Th this is a list of 100 or more books. And he's, he's saying these are the books that that were his favorite amongst the yeah, last two years. So I've wow. been reading over the last two years, and they run as follows. 
Of course, I have forgotten a great many, especially ephemeral novels, which I have happened to take up, and I have also read much in the magazines. Moreover, more than half the books are books which I have read before. These I did not read thorough, but simply took out of part took out parts I liked. And he goes on to describe yeah, that yeah, yeah. Um, in some ways um, uh, he's reread entire books, but in, in other ways he's just revisiting favorite parts or, or, or experiences. He, he wants to like revisit and, and re-experience like the emotions of going over those, those passages. Uh, what, I, yeah. What's ahead. interesting about this is like bo- books, you know, this is before the modern, modern age of, of the way we um, consume digital media. So books, he's almost like using books in the way we use like TV versus books now for some of them. He's like just using, he's, he's still reading the whole time, but in some, he's just kind of going through it pretty quickly for entertainment. Some he's like going more in depth and reading about the histories or the Greek, you know, Greek tragedies and stuff more in depth. You know, some he's reading for the second time. It's like, it's kind of how we like, leave parks and rec on in the background while we're yeah. doing yeah. work or something like so he's because there was less types of media he was using that specific type in different ways like he obviously could have gone to the theater or gone to see someone play music or i guess the radio was the radio invented when he was around i'm not uh, sure yeah i don't know <laughs> so like you know cap you know in order to hear good music you'd have to go to a show to see a a violin player or something you know what i mean so everything wasn't as readily available so he's diversifying that media it's pretty cool i would use the office as, yeah. as kind of my personal example uh the first time i watched the office it was about experiencing the story mm-hmm. um as as a new experience but i've rewatched the office maybe three or four times now in the last i don't know like five to ten years however long it's been out uh, but when I revisit, it's because I want to revisit that emotion right. of traversing the story with the characters. Yeah. Or you like catch a tidbit or a joke you like and you look up for five minutes and you watch that scene. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So, so he goes on to say, um, I omitted all the opening parts in Pickwick. I skipped about going through all my favorite scenes. In Macaulay, I read simply the essays that appealed to me. Uh, while in Keats and Browning, although I read again and again many of the poems, I think that they must be at least 80 or 90% of the old poetry of each. As far as bulk is concerned, which I have never succeeded in reading all, the old books I read were not necessarily my favorite. It was largely a matter of chance. All the readings, of course, were purely for enjoyment and of most, what's that word? I don't know, desultory. Yeah. Desultory <laughs> character. Uh, with this preliminary explanation, here it goes. Mm-hmm. So I, I love this kind of like intro into <clears throat> this list and where he's saying, hey, we were talking about this kind of what, what like, hey, Roosevelt, like, what do you, what do yeah. you consume? And, and he goes on to say, oh, I, I, um, here's a list of the things I consume. Yeah. These are actually just my um, entertainment favorites and what i what i find fascinating about roosevelt is that his entertainment favorites actually traverse a lot of different genres right that clearly a structure to the way he's laying it out here yeah because he he starts off with kind of the greek and and roman uh treatises Mm -hmm. there's um marcus aurelius's meditations in here i think art of war is in here then he gets into more like fiction like beowulf and that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. Macbeth, as you go along yeah Mm -hmm. uh into the wild tom sawyer yep and so uh, there's poems yeah poetry more like experiential stuff at the end yeah yeah he actually the i I guess within that uh intro 
um, text, he, he acknowledges the importance of poetry. And so poetry is like a very, of, of the list, a lot of the content is poetry. It leans in the poetic direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you would group Shakespeare in there as well, but um, he's got a lot of kind of um, examples that fall into the poetry genre. But I think if you, if you look at this list, and you look at Theodore Roosevelt's life and his political agendas and and his belief in in um, preservation. Mm. You can see a direct parallel between the media that he's right. consuming really good point. and the philosophies and the actions of the man in general. And I've been very fascinated by this idea of what does it mean to actively or passively consume media for the purpose of curating a life. Well, that's, I mean, that's a really good point. Like, for example, um, you know, I feel a certain kinship now with him that we both read Jack London's Call of the Wild, right? And, like, sometimes when we when we um, engage in media, we pick it because that interest already exists. So say, take preservation, for example. Something had to, there was some, there's some reason why he initially started caring about preservation early in his life right maybe it was because he read some books really really early on that that instilled that in him right or you know so that's how it would start but or you know he could also because he has that established interest then seek out other things that have to do with preservation for example yes so in in what he's saying these were just the books and this is the same list just in a different oh, nice. format um that's easier to read than that that kind of um, cool. old, old I like seeing old scanned books. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, but but um, in his text, he was saying those were just the books that he read over the the intervening two years, the previous two years. Um, and so, to that point, is he now at a place in his life where he's choosing content to reinforce his beliefs, mm-hmm. or is he still choosing content to broaden the way he? sees his own beliefs or to be exposed to more information or 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 varying points of views yeah i mean the same we're just talking about books right now but the same book can serve that same purpose at different points of your life right like when you first when we first played mario kart as a kid you know it's a new thing and you're just playing you know but now we play it out of this kind of nostalgic um still enjoying enjoying it in a different way but we're we're engaging it as like an old friend and that still has like a lot of value in your life, you know? So like if you constantly were just reading something new or engaging in a new thing over and over and over again, it kind of means that you don't particularly really like anything. You know, like if um, it's almost like uh, if you go to the store and you're, you're getting a beer on a Friday night. I like to pick different things every now and then, but I still go back to the ones I like. And, there's, and I think a healthy balance and mix of that is like what makes for a, f- a fulfilling media engagement in your life, that kind of thing, right? Like you, you just, if you, you know, yeah. So that's kind of the end of that point. But yeah. Well, I was, I was reading, I was reading through um, some of your primer questions, mm. and a lot of them had to do with this idea of consuming media um, or having media influenced you at different moments in your life mm-hmm. and as influenced by different um, elements of your life. So um, being, say, influenced by um, the media consumption of your parents. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, so I, I when I was logging, and a good example of this is like when I was logging my movies that I've seen throughout my life, I had this like, 
this moment where I was just like, it, it, was I watching Finding Nemo and Braveheart at the same time? And and like according to my graph, yeah, I was. So when I was like in, I remember being in like seventh grade, and when when you'd have like a, or sixth grade maybe, and we'd have like a rainy day at the end of the year, our our teacher would put on like Finding Nemo, mm-hmm. and then everyone was watching. It was cool. I'd seen it ten or eight times, and it was one of the main kind of cultural culturally significant things at the time for kids our age, right? Um, but at the same time, that's the first time I engaged something like like Braveheart, for example, which is a very violent film. But I kind of, you know, my dad had it on the weekends and he'd be, my mom would be doing something else and we'd just be sitting there and I'd kind of half be watching Braveheart. You know, maybe I'd be playing my Game Boy or something. But like when I, when I started making this graph, I knew that that was the first time I saw it. And I was thinking like, you know, I really like Quentin Tarantino now, all of his films pretty mm-hmm. much, right? Mm-hmm. Kill Bill, Django, all that stuff. And they're super violent. But like I, I just kind of like um, those films in general, and the violence factor is just more of a, it's like an artistically done. It's it's violence done in an artistic way, right? So I'm I'm wondering like are those um, are my tastes now influenced by me kind of engaging Braveheart at a young age, or The Patriot with Mel Gibson, or Saving Private Ryan, like some of those early like war films? You know, it's weird to think that you you kind of are in, engaging those different types of media. Um, in the same time of your life, but in just in different arenas. Some are maybe at home. Some may be with your friends. Um, some might be in a public arena, like in a movie theater. You know, I wouldn't have gone to the movies to see Braveheart. Probably, I was too young. You know, but you know, because I was at, sometimes at, at home, um, your parents' tastes start to kind of seep seep into you. Uh, especially with music as well, if your parents are playing a certain genre around the house, that kind of thing. So I, I feel like I, that was one of the big discoveries as I went along is is seeing mostly my dad's tastes kind of like, you know, show up in my taste. And I, as like, as I got older, I started to view them as, now I watch Braveheart, I just watch it as a good film that I like. And it's kind of on my maturity level. But I was definitely far less mature when I was in seventh grade, right? This idea that your parents in some way either directly influence uh, your media preferences or um, they act as like a point of entry mm-hmm. for, for media influences. I would, I would say the examples that I have in my life is uh, my after, after my brother and I were born, my mom uh, predominantly stayed at home. Mm-hmm. And my dad was um, the primary um, working parent. And so when I would get off the school bus, my mom would be at the house, um, like, mm-hmm. preparing dinner or, do, like, doing just basically any of, like, the housework that she was taking care of. And it would be a very common experience that when my brother and I would walk in the front door, my mom would be playing music mm-hmm. really loudly right. in the living room because she would be in all of the rooms of the house, and so she'd have it cranked all the way up. What kind of music? And and I specifically remember she would have um, Sting and the Police mm-hmm. like playing. <clears throat> and so whenever I hear Sting and the Police, I'm brought back to it being... Three o'clock in the afternoon with the right, afternoon yeah, sun. Yeah. The smell um, you can like smell the smells and yeah, yeah, exactly. But so like now when I revisit, say listening to Sting and the Police, I am not only 
it's not that that particular piece of of um, music is necessarily drove future music, but that <clears throat> moment, whenever I in- re-engage that particular piece of media, I'm brought back to that moment in my life. Mm-hmm. Now, the the opposite example of that would say would be uh, when I sat down to say watch Indiana Jones with my dad. And so growing up, my brother and I, we would watch um, Star Wars or Indiana Jones, and there would be like these epic um, adventure films. And I think, and, and we'd also sit down and watch um, um, uh, Blazing Saddles and, and, uh, and Young Frankenstein. And, and that stuff stuck with you a little more, basically. Exactly. That, that those particular movies weren't just moments in time. Mm-hmm. They were actually um, kind of foundational entry points into the way that I think about my humor throughout my life and, right. and my um, affinity for um, like adventure films or, or like puzzles. Like Indiana Jones has this kind of puzzle yeah, yeah, component yeah. to it. Yeah. And so some media anchors kind of ephemeral emotive moments in your life and then other media is entry points into um, kind of lifelong experiences. Yeah, I mean, and you could take it even further and say, you know, um, like you're a designer and an architect now, something like that. Like I hate, I kind of hate when people do the origin stories of like, I played with Legos as a kid and now I'm an architect. Like something like that, like watching Indiana Jones and like the puzzle logic of that could be like one, that could be one of the maybe 25 things that like made you a designer today. So it's not just like what you, um, ingested as far as entertainment or media later in your life, but it really could inform like real life decisions like like a career for example you know so like we're not just talking about entertainment as or media as entertainment we're talking about it as like core to your actual identity as a person right yeah i I wrote down um nurturing uh nature versus nurture Mm -hmm. as this um idea of developing through media influences like if if we're going to accept the concept of of um we are biological creatures that have a um, kind of a foundational DNA, but then layered on top of that DNA are our experiences and 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 our kind of trials and tribulations through our lives. Media is just another layer on those experiences, and we could start to think about media influences as being as strong of a nurturing device as yeah. say our parents' ideals or or um, our friends in elementary school or the jobs that we take or. Or, or political or, or philosophical beliefs. Yeah, media is this kind of additional layer on on top of like all of that in general. Yeah, I mean, like what you're exposed to, when, especially when you're young, really has lasting effects on your life. Like the other, other thing that I was thinking about when you brought we brought up was um, I wrote this down. It's this idea of creating like your own counterculture in media, and like for example, where did I write that? Like um, uh, 3B pseudo rebellion so like some things like video games or music like when you first start choosing what types of media you're engaging with like say um you know your mom was playing sting or whatever and then like or your my my parents like say they played a lot of country music and then like you decide you know screw this i hate country music i'm listening to metallica and like sometimes what you're exposed to you you i'm not saying i listen to a lot of metallica that was an example um sometimes what you choose to engage in is the exact opposite. Yes. Like um, <clears throat> when I was, you know, eight or nine, I'd be playing like Crash Bandicoot and like I started listening to like Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, and I, uh, that was kind of like, and my parents never listened to Red Hot Chili Peppers, but it was kind of one of my things that like, 
couple of me and my friends, like, like we felt kind of cool, you know, like I didn't know what they were talking about, like Californication, like blood sugar, sex magic and stuff like all this stuff. But yeah. Like, now, um, now I'm when I listen to, I still love red chili peppers now in my life. And like, now I'm on that maturity level to really engage it as they intended probably. But they also, you know, they know that some of their music is being listened to by young people. And it's just like, it was one of the things I could hold on to as like my media or my decision or my thing. Um, you know, music, I think especially lends itself to that because, you know, one of the things I was talking about is how music is kind of the, one of the first, uh, types of media you engage with by, um, by your, by not choosing it yourself, right? The radio in your parents' car or you're at a restaurant and some hip song is playing at a coffee shop or, um, you go to a see a film and there's a soundtrack. Like there's kind of, even when you're walking down the street, you know, you can see, you can hear music. So it's like, it's kind of, uh, it's one of those things that you kind of learn through osmosis or you get a taste for through osmosis. And when the first time you decide to really choose your first album you like, like that sticks with you, you know? It was, I was listening to, I think, Radio Lab or This American Life a couple of weeks ago, maybe like a month or two ago. Uh, and I, I, I don't remember the name of the episode nor the way that they're they're kind of categorizing this or what they're actually calling this. But the, the gist of the idea is as um, biological creatures that express uh, desires to have free will, uh, the act of suggesting that somebody should believe a certain way or or live a certain type of life actually causes people to double down mm-hmm. on the opposite, even if it's to their detriment. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, you could take the current political climate as an example. Let's say that there were a, um, uh, n- like, 99 um, completely unbiased, factual, um, uh, scholarly articles that just said, um, that Trump would be the worst thing ever, okay? Um, and that by choosing that uh, particular route, uh, you would uh, harm yourself and you would harm everybody else. The act of actually imposing mm-hmm. that singular experience on people forces them to double down in the opposite direction um, in a way to say, look, I, I completely hear this, but I'm not going to let you deny me the free will of choice, even though I've, you've given me all the information. Yeah, this suggests that's such a good point. Man. Suggests otherwise. It's like that with uh, like if your friend, um, you know, recommends a movie. Unless it's like, like I only take recommendations really seriously from like certain people. Like if you recommend something to me, I know we, you know, my taste well enough that I can engage that thing, right? And I'll probably listen to it or watch it or something. But if someone off the str- like one of my friends I don't talk to much is like, hey, you should definitely watch this, and I'm, I. I like tend to just not, you know, because it's like, well, I, I, or like if everyone's going to the Renwick gallery and I know I want to go, but it's so popular that I, I just like can't get myself to like do it. It's, it's like, it is the exact opposite effect. I, I get it. So what, what I found really interesting, um, kind of in the way that you're, you're talking about, um, this idea of, uh, I, I don't know if you use the word yet, but, uh, in the primary, you use the word, um, coming online yeah and and what what's the moment that you come online as an individual throughout your life um uh coming online as as a person and then come online 
to access these different types of media. And, and as I was reading through um, the way that you're talking about them, it made me think about the fact that the brain, uh, at least by the way that the NIH, the National Health um, Organization, defines it, the brain itself evolves or, or is in development all the way up until your 25th year or around your 25th year. And I just did like a quick search to just look at what that evolution is. And um, uh, a quick Google search into the NIH's abstraction into brain development basically breaks down uh, peak um, brain development as um, have, like I guess the the ages where your brain is developing mm. the most oh, would cool. be around the ages three, seven, eleven to twelve, and fifteen. Wow! And then full development occurs around the ages of twenty five. Okay, mm. but I think the thing that I found the most um, interesting was that the brain doesn't develop uniformly, but it develops mm. locally um, at different points in your life, and so. Uh, when you are in your um, emergent or your teen years, your amygdala is what develops most uh, or is developing faster, which is really controlling emotion. Yeah. And then later in your 20s, your um, prefrontal cortex, uh, which typically deals with more rational things, is developing towards your later like in your 20s towards when you've reached full development. And so that could really co- cool. that yeah, that could correspond to this idea that. Um, uh, we go through a rebellious age where during the point where our brain is going through its peak emotional development, mm-hmm. we are pushing a counterculture of media influences to say, look, I completely get that you're <clears throat> telling me great things that would be good for me and, and, and uh, like a wonderful way to experience the world. But, both emotionally and as a, as a biological creature that is taking, um, uh, that is safeguarding my own uh, free will, mm-hmm. I'm going to potentially throw, like, like do the opposite of what you're suggesting and experience counterculture as a way to develop my the emotional side of my brain and a way to develop my exercise of free will. And so that, that could be an insight into why we see this flipping of media influences generationally, Mm -hmm. where um, what our parents listened to is is almost poison to us as teenagers <laughs> but then when we yeah. when we reach our 20s yeah. we kind of almost get a, a moment of nostalgia <laughs> mm-hmm. and start to revisit both what we love and our parents love as um as we reach maybe our our developmental maturity in having both our emotional and and rational parts of our brains like develop at the same time so i'm, I'm not yeah. Yeah, i'm by yeah. no means suggesting that neither you or i can speak to the qualities or the actual, um, like the way that the actual brain works. But I think there's (laughs) no way. Yeah. (laughs) But I think there's could be a very interesting parallel to why teenagers experience a media counterculture Mm -hmm. in, in kind of in, 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 uh, tandem with the way that our brain, at least by the way that NIH is describing it develops. Yeah, I, that's this is a really fascinating uh, study here because, like, or you know, uh, points that you pointed out, like, you know, when you're 15, for example, you remember those like er, like your emotional brain is developing, like, 
you remember those early high school like songs that you like really loved or maybe irrationally loved like you that you kind of associated with like some first crush or something you both like you made a mixtape and you ha- you know what i mean like that 15 year old part of your brain is like i was really into like uh the fray or like fallout boy or something some like you know some some band i listen back to now or like yellow card ocean avenue and it's like yeah you break way up, away yeah. away from here i'll be <laughs> you're like my chemical romance or something you know you're like mm-hmm, you're mm-hmm. like you listen back to that now and you're like okay like i i, I uh i recognize what i was going through at that time but uh and i'll still dabble in those songs every now and then but i feel like a i feel like an outsider my logical self now looking back at those um those choices and it's so cliche but it's you know, it's driven by your physiology and your biology. And then when you're, you know, now, now I engage media, like, um, you know, this logical, my age 25 developed brain is like, is this, is this film a good film in cinematography? Is this, you know, is Roma, the opening sequence of Roma, is that a, how good is this long shot? And I feel like some sort of snob sometimes, but like I try to, I try to like, um, think about them emotionally sometimes too but it's it's hard to to not think logically about media anymore like is this objectively good or am i just watching trash on purpose which is fun sometimes you know reality tv has its place you know it's we know it's not you know logically a, a, a thing that is actually good but it's still entertaining in a different way i i often wonder if i'm becoming too picky or selective yeah I, yeah I, yeah in the way that i'm choosing things now in that I I have a a strong sense to safeguard my my own um, my own time because mm-hmm. um, I, I I tend to carry my the the schedule of things that I I juggle pretty heavily mm-hmm. and so I I I'm one I'm exactly one of those people who will spend the length of a movie looking through the Netflix um, catalog <laughs> to come up with the movie that I feel like is the most benefit to my um, both intellectual and entertainment value. Like I'll, I'll, I'll waste an hour selecting something rather than just selecting yeah. anything. And I, I often wonder is, is that is being overly selective a sign of maturity for the safeguard of your time? Yeah. Or is it potentially a loss of these more emotionally driven periods of your life where you are kind of allowing yourself to be exposed to many things yeah. um, as, as just a way to uh, kind of engage your physiology and engage kind of the spectrum of your emotions while you're in your, in your teen years. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about that in the context of intentionality, the last point, um, yeah. because that's like exactly what we're talking about, right? It's like, you know, so I basically broke it down and we talked about this some, but it's like, um, and I struggle with this all the time, right? Do I purposely engage something with intentionality as I'm defining it as say, I'm listening to a specific album and I'm going to either, I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to judge it. I'm going to listen to it five times and I'm going to either bring it in my canon or not if it sticks with me. Mm-hmm. You know, like I started listening to the Grateful Dead a lot recently because um, <clears throat> Evelyn's uncle was like super into Grateful Dead and he recommended this album to me. So like sometimes I'll listen to Grateful Dead radio on Spotify and it's exposed me to cool different bands that are like jam bands. And now that I didn't really know, like Papadocio is a band, for example, that I didn't know about before like a month ago, but they do all kinds of cool, like 15 minute long instrumental guitar stuff, just like Grateful Dead. So I was engaging that like while I was working and I'm listening to maybe 10 songs. And if I hear a song I really like, I like 
grab my phone and I'm like, oh, what is this? And I like like that on Spotify and it adds to my canon, right? But, or, you know, so like there's, a, there's an album the Grateful Dead have like called Cornell 77. It's like supposed to be their, their best album. So now I'm making it a, it a, a project of mine to, to know that album so like to like as it goes along so i know the next song that comes and then like i'm adding it to my canon right but both of those ways and this is going to be like an open-ended question but like both of those ways i think are really valuable like engaging media the parks and rec playing in the background or watching a a new show on netflix that you're hopefully going to add to your canon so it's like sometimes you should be like seeking for things to add to your overall canon of your life that'll always be with you and then sometimes once they're kind of in the, in your kind of internal library, you can play them in the background or you can watch them in the background or you can read a book for a second time kind of quickly like Theodore Roosevelt. Um, but how, what's the balance that you should be doing that in? If, you're, if 90% of the time you're always looking for new stuff like we talked about or 90% of the time you're always reading the same stuff, you're not going to grow as much as a person. Like where do you find that balance, right? Yeah, I, I, I mean... I'm, I'm sure it's probably a little bit different for every person. I, I, I would say that if you had asked me in my early 20s, I would have said the balance should be towards the um, intellectual endeavor. But now, towards the later half of my 20s, I'm finding that um, it's it's almost the, um, uh, the, the, the phrase... Um, uh, all work and no play makes Johnny a dull boy. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. There's there's this um, uh, there's this realization that I've coming to that I, and I think a lot of people just don't have the bandwidth to always be consuming yeah. um, for the purpose of of intellectual enlightenment, mm-hmm. and that there's a need to be balanced. Th- th- there's a need to balance um, consumption growth with consumption relaxation. Yeah. And and it's a good way I, to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And I've I've experienced this with the way that I've I've handled relationships. I've I've approached relationships as say all fun endeavors and I've approached relationships as very serious like mm-hmm. uh, let's conquer the world, <laughs> like always be going after your goals endeavors and both have failed. <laughs> and <laughs> And and it's because at some point you realize <laughs> that you either are being very lame for the other person or you eventually think the other person is very lame mm. for either being all work or all play. And there's like a balance in there as well. Um, with say like video games, we haven't talked about video games yet, but uh, there is a period of my life in um my teen years where i was playing all multiplayer and yeah I, and yeah. i and i loved that period of my life because it was um this ultra social um atmosphere of going over yeah. to friends same, house way, same and, exact way halo call mm-hmm. duty fifa that kind of stuff yeah and and it and it built um this like really great sense of 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 camaraderie about um engaging in it's like playing board games together doing a puzzle together or i'm sure like going through a traumatic event or being in the military or anytime that you're <laughs> but anytime yeah, that yeah, you're, I got, I got you're, it. you're yeah, like yeah. traversing a journey with other people there's a sense of kind of uh, tribal growth there mm-hmm. um, but then when i started college i saw playing multiplayer games as taking away from study time. Mm -hmm. And so I removed multiplayer games completely from my life. 
Uh, and I really only get engaged um, a lot of really uh, interesting indie games that yeah. often had some type of narrative or philosophical or, or social uh, commentary. And, and I justified using my time for that yeah. because I felt like they were linked to a stronger intellectual endeavor um, uh, doing that alone. But then in my most recent years, I've realized that, oh, I'm, I'm like, I've self-isolated myself in that experience by only now having uh, intellectually driven gameplay. Mm -hmm. And now, now I'm like exploring, striking a balance between a little bit of Battlefront five with, with my friend Tim and, and, and like this, like playing squad games every, or Mario Kart on the switch and stuff like like that. We we, we do a couple times a year to have these like, yeah. Um, nostalgia like events mm-hmm. for for our grad school. <laughs> nostalgia events sounds sad. <laughs> no, but like the sixth annual nostalgia. Man. No, but like no, I know I get you. Like what you're saying. Yeah. But but I think I think there's there's a balance to the bandwidth you can devote to yeah. intellectual consumption versus relaxation consumption. I, have you experienced the same oh, thing? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, well, one thing about that, and then I'll jump back into video games. Last night <clears throat> when I got home. Uh, Evelyn was watching Greece. Oh, is she back? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, She's nice. actually about to travel again, actually. Oh wow! Um, I tell you this. She's no, not, not the most recent travel. She's gonna be gone for like three weeks. And is she really? Starting in a week, and then I'm gonna meet her in Guatemala. Oh shit! I'll tell you about it after this. Nice, nice. Um, we're going. Yeah. So anyway, see, I'm going to Guatemala on like March 15th. Oh, I'm excited for like five days. Yeah, it's gonna be sick. Um, so she, I got home and she was like kind of half watching Greece. And like she kind of caught it in the middle, and I didn't realize she actually really likes Greece. Like she can tell you the parts of the movie, certain things. Like you know, I know the basic gist. We actually talked. Uh, Evelyn and I talked about Greece during um, the New Year's Eve party. Oh really? Yeah, about it all being a dream. And yeah, there's so many like crazy, like ephemeral, like sat, like landscapes. Yeah, m- yeah. Dream scenes. But I, I I interrupted you. Go ahead. So, <laughs> um, so I didn't like. For example, I didn't know that she had that movie like in her canon. I thought she was just kind of watching it. Right. And then I got home. I was like, oh, that's like what, you know, because sometimes on Friday night, we like to like, you know, watch a movie. And if we're not, you know, we'll do some stuff more on like Saturdays. Friday, we're just tired to watch a movie, right? Carry out and that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. So, um, you know, I kind of came in halfway through and she was also kind of just flicking a little bit. She was going back and forth. And, and I was like, well, we have to decide. It's nine, right? We have to decide whether we want to like kind of teeter into the second half of Greece and watch the end or like sit down now and like actually watch a different movie. So, we kind of went back and forth and, you know, and t- she tends to be more on the side of, uh, you know, just for more entertainment, more relaxed. And I kind of like, am, I am in the mode of let's like watch a movie, like one of the Oscar films, like one of the best picture nominations. Or, so we like kind of settled in, in the middle of like watching the new Fantastic Beasts movie, Fantastic Beasts 2. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And because we both we both are like really big Harry Potter fans and we, we just watched the first Fantastic Beasts movie. And like we just watched, so we watched Fantastic Beasts 2, right? But it was just like, it was kind of trash, and it like it was. It's cool to see the creatures, especially in the second one. It's 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 really actually not a good movie at all. Um, the first one's better, I think, but they're making five, which is crazy. Yeah, I I think none of us expect it to live up to Harry Potter. Yeah, but it's like this. It's all it's like the Hobbit movies, you know. It's like uh, yeah, you like the Hobbit book. The first one's decent, but like CGI orcs, all this stuff. It's not cool. Um, you know, Lord of the Rings is, those are like my two big canons of my life is Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. And like, I, th- nothing's going to touch the original, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we watched, we made the decision to like watch a movie 
with intentionality, sit down, make popcorn, turn the lights off, watch this movie, start, we're going to start it right now. And I think I would have had just as good of a night watching the second half of Grease, but I might have shot myself in the foot by just trying to watch a, a movie, right? You know, so like, I think if you force it, if you force being like super, um, you know, like we have to, tonight I'm going to check a box. Sometimes it kind of backfires, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I think um, Megan and I probably had a little of that with Valentine's Day. Yeah. In that we, um, like, we're pretty, um, like, we go and get dinner pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. And we go and we do, um, um, like, we'll go to, like, a museum or a theater. So, like, it's, it's not like going out is a unique experience yeah. for us. And, and, um, over, over the weekend, we went to Woolly Mammoth and, and saw like a theater show. And we totally could have used that as the Valentine's Day like activity or, or what, whatnot. Um, but we, like there was no need to, we just, we don't think about things in terms of we need to fill that day with an activity we're just doing the activities as as they come and when valentine's day showed up then we felt this like weird you feel forced yeah weird forced like the the world forces you to like actively pursue an activity on on that day yeah and and so like i can like um share that that feeling of could there have just been more fun just finishing out greece or do, like, yeah. it, like, what is the real value of slotting in a a what it would be deemed like the refined choice? Yeah, and it comes down to two people being on the same page, right? Yeah. Like if I if I decided that on my own, if I was in that mood to watch, um, you know, watch uh, something, I would have probably enjoyed it more if I was just like by myself, for example, in that in that context. You know what I mean? So it's all it's all contextual. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to jump back into the video games conversation yes. because, yes. um, you know, for me, video games are really important to me early in my life, right? One of the first kind of ways that I, like I was saying, kind of held it close to my chest, like all these PlayStation one video games, you know, crash and Tekken and, um, all the, you know, all these games, right. And like from ages, you know, ages seven to 13 or 14, like, before kind of online gaming, which is what you were talking about, about before I was, I, and I love playing video games. You know, I would, it was like a big part of my life and I would go over to a friend's house and play and we, we play the same game, Spyro the dragon, you know, early halo stuff, early mm-hmm. call of duty. Um, and then like for me, you know, I kind of regret this now, but I feel like when I got into later high school and then through college, all I really played was like multiplayer with people like, you know, FIFA or, mostly sports games, actually, to be honest, um, some shooter games, but like I stopped engaging with like the indie culture of games, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like you look back and think about Crash Bandicoot. That was a pretty indie game that was playing when I was seven or eight years old. Right. That was like a, uh, that was like a a really kind of artistically significant game, like the art involved and like, you know, and, I kind of stopped playing video games during most of college because I feel I, and it wasn't an intentional decision. I just kind of felt like, um, Oh, like video games or something I did when I was like a little younger and stuff. And like, you know, now with like buying a Nintendo switch and like getting into Zelda and all these other, like, you know, child of light and, 
these like the new Mario games and Overcooked. These like little small like indie style games. Um, I'm that's like a a, for, a way to engage like a highly developed form of art and like a really diversified rich community, um, and like. I feel like societally there's like a stigma with video games. It's like pretty messed up actually. And I was like a victim of that. Like <laughs> I know there's worse problems to have, but mm-hmm. like I was the kind of the victim of like, Oh, you're too old for like video games. Like go to, you know, go, go, go out on the town or like, you know, you're old enough, like go out into a party or like go, you're sitting home playing video. You know what I mean? Like, and I kind of think that, um, especially with like the, the more, uh, like the broader, um, community that video games is growing now to include all kinds of different creative people and different hu- different studios and it's a much more like the movie industry now there's all kinds of creative processes like and I know it was always like that but you know there's still that stigma of if you play six hours of video games like I read this on the internet I don't know where I read probably a meme or something like if you play six hours of video games you're like um, wasting your time or but if you're like watching six hours of Netflix you're like you're somehow a part of this larger conversation that's not as much of a way to see your time or like if you're watching six hours of critically acclaimed movies you're like you're not wasting your time or six hours of a book right but why is video why are video games like you, you get what i'm saying obviously but why yeah. wh- why is that stigma why does that exist i think it's getting less and less but i think that was like an unconscious thing that affected me do you get what i'm saying yeah i do i i think the the I, I went through a similar thing. Uh, I think I said that I played a lot of social games in high school, but when I went to college, I, I would think the the media that I was consuming switched from um, uh, social media, and I don't mean like Facebook, but like um, socially uh, infused media like video games mm-hmm. or, or um, um, like watching movies with other people. Um, to being consuming a lot of media solo by myself, like um, listening to a lot of um, audiobooks or, or um, uh, watching a lot of movies by myself to consume all that stuff. Um, but I think that the stigma with video games is that I would say that in the last like 10 years ago or 15 years ago, they were seen as a... Um, uh, like a purely just a game mm-hmm. and not as a pure entertainment. Yeah. Pure, pure entertainment game and not linked to things like hand-eye coordination or dexterity or, or potentially um, be having these more intricate, intricate um, uh, um, emotional or social, political or philosophical stories woven in. Like I would, I would almost say that there is just as much merit to the book the Road by Cormac McCarthy, uh, as there is to say the video game The Last of Us, yeah. which was which is about this idea of what would happen if um, uh, the world went through an existential crisis and uh, this this little girl that you were traversing across this land was the only person that that had the cure, and and ultimately you have to make hard decisions with with what you're doing, caring for this this child across this desolate landscape that that spoke to um what does it mean to to be a near nurturer or caregiver or um uh, uh um uh to hold um like society's choices in your hand as an individual versus the collective and mm-hmm. and so 100 percent, i 100 percent agree yeah, yeah i i think i think <clears throat> we're now coming to this realization that you can infuse 
the genre of video games with as much narrative and philosophical clout as you originally could with say books is that because so I, is it, is it is it a generational thing that maybe video games is more of the one of the newer fully developed types of media so like video games didn't start until like the 70s like whatever pong stuff and you had arcade games and stuff but like really our parents generation like they the video games for them were pretty much like entertainment based or the mass, the mass, there was just less choices, right? There was just Mario Kart, there was Mario brothers and stuff like that. Right. But then like now that our generation has kind of grown up with video games that are more developed, like we view it as like a more, a more serious type of media for, to, for lack of a better term. I, like, yeah, like go ahead. so like Barack Obama releases his like top 20 books of the year or like his top 20 movies of the year. Yeah, and his like songs of the year, yeah. songs of the year and stuff like that. Like, is an, is the next presidential candidate going to release their top 20 video games of the year to appeal to that culture? Like, you know, what, when is that going to be like taken seriously? Because I feel like a lot of important people in society don't play video games or they, I, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I think, I think you are speaking down the right way of thinking about this, that it is generational and it's evolving. Mm-hmm. I would, I would think of it relative to, uh, before the ability to record um, on documents, we just had spoken narrative um, uh, um, uh, archives so that uh, that be- before we had the ability to record stories, all of our stories were mm-hmm. um, uh, oral stories yeah. and oral traditions. And if you look at the, um, uh, the original... Um, uh, the original release of Beauty and the Beast, as Belle is walking through the town with her pile of books, all of the villagers are making fun of her mm-hmm. uh, by essentially saying, you've got your nose in a book. Mm-hmm. And and so there's this kind of, um, there's this translation from an oral tradition to a written tradition that, like nowadays, if we saw a kid with their, with their nose in a book, we'd be like, that's the next Einstein. Mm-hmm. But in in that in that trend like, so books were the video games of the time exactly yeah and so we we go from oral to to written and then we go from um written narratives to experiential simulated narratives mm-hmm. and i think the next evolution that we're going to experience is when we eventually start to engage virtual reality um as a as a lived experience more so than a projected experience. Mm. So right now the narrative still lives on the screen or through the virtual window. But at the point that we enter the virtual window ourselves, we then take on a new way of engaging narrative. That is a, it's, it's almost returning to a digital oral narrative Mm. through the experience of being in a video game. Or we could imagine that we consume media through a series of experiences, but we might soon be at a place where we experience media as a 30-second upload, and we mm. have all the works of Shakespeare just set, like, pushed into us. Yeah. And then <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, is the, what does that mean to the, um, the experience of consuming media and having a moment to reflect on it if you're able to uh, receive media all at the same time? Does, does that then... Um, would we then develop a social critique to say, um, uh, 
I don't understand if you, I, I don't believe that you truly experienced the beauty of a poem if you received all the poems of the world in one second mm -hmm. rather than to read um, uh, 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 Kerouac's uh, poems of the seasons while you sat, sat next to a, a window and watched the bird land on a branch <laughs> at the same time that you you read the haiku of the of the bird landing on the branch at the same time. And so I think we're going to self-critique the next evolution yeah. into the same way that we're, we're critiquing video games right now. Yeah. But, and then it's like, well, you get into VR stuff. I mean, there's always going to be like the backlash too. Like it, I, I was thinking when you were talking about um, like books, printed books versus audio books. Like we both have different ways of engaging, like uh, engaging that. And it's like, I've started listening to more, more audio books recently. And like, I used to kind of, um, I used to kind of think that, or like think that if I really wanted a book to be part of my canon, I would have to read it in print. Um, but now I don't think that as much, you know, I, I don't like, I, like I listened to the, uh, we are Bob, we are Legion book. And I kind of just was like, I'll try this out. And, um, and I really liked it. And I think like now it's going to be something I'm going to revisit. And I listen to that in audiobook form. So I'm like, you know, there's always going to be the next time we push to VR, like people are always going to just, you know, they're like, for example, um, I was reading something recently about this new show with Chris Pine coming out with the black, um, black the Dahlia murders. Have you heard of this book? I, I've not the same, um, the same, uh, woman that directed uh, Wonder Woman I forget her name actually but um, she's directing this new show and but she's filming it on tape like eight millimeter what eight millimeter whatever like on like physical reels and old-school cameras in mm -hmm. LA and they're doing like a noir style thing so when she was filming Wonder Woman obviously it's the highest tech CGI stuff you could possibly imagine yes and now you know even someone like her is taking a step back to re-engage the original form of that media through film and the editing process of physically like cutting film and stuff and like really engaging that. Right. So I think there's always going to be a place. So no matter, no matter how far we push in one tech side, to, it's almost like human nature to want to come back to that physical book or, or, um, old, old classical movie that's filmed in a certain way or like, you know, it's, and it's back to this idea of nostalgia, but it's also like nostalgia is sometimes chalked up to this kind of like, um, you know, you just, you're just kind of, uh, like a curiosity or a novelty nostalgia, right? But really it's like engaging something in that original form or that initial form that you, you, you heard it or you listened to it or you watched it. There's something to be said for that on a very human level, you know? I, I always use the example, um, there are more, um, chain mail, blacksmiths today than there were in the middle ages mm -hmm. purely because we have a larger population and the amount of chain mail specialists that feed into the renaissance experiences and the online productions of just curating that that amount of content um we just necessitates that there are more chain mail specialists today mm -hmm. and i think you could say the same thing about the consumption of books there probably was only the medium of books during the Victorian era. Um, but just because that was the only medium doesn't mean that there were more people reading books during mm. the Victorian era. We probably have more people reading books nowadays because of just the population increase. And I almost feel like as we gain 
new modes. We don't lose existing modes. Mm. We just have primary, secondary, and tertiary modes. And because we experience population growth, the the tertiary modes never go away. They actually like strangely grow. Mm-hmm. They just grow within a tertiary choice mm-hmm. in in a way. I think is is fascinating. I think it's also um, maybe speaks to this idea that we as designers work um, digitally, but we also work manually, mm-hmm. and we do that because we. Uh, I think we all universally agree that there is an appropriate tool for an appropriate action. Yeah, that's a good point. And and maybe we retain things like oral stories uh, and and written stories and digital stories uh, because there is a efficiency in each of their use. Uh, almost like you don't go to a dinner party and break out a book and start reading somebody a. Um, uh, like a written version of your vacation, like you, you, you. <laughs> you the weirdest thing of all. I know, yeah, exactly. But like, you'd go to a party and somebody would be like, "Hey, how was? Um, you went to like Thailand. How'd that go?" Um, you don't break out your journal. You describe to them orally because there's there's something very intimate about yeah. expressing the media of your life spoken in that scenario but then as a blog it would be written and then if it was like you became famous and it and it needed to have a higher entertainment value it it transforms into um the the wes anderson thailand like experience or what like (laughs) yeah you know i get yeah it's a good point yeah so i don't i don't think we lose any of these things i think we hold on to them and it is allowing us additional ways to engage this media yeah Ken, I, I really want to jump into your diagram to have one very directed conversation. All right, so and and it's specifically framed around the fact that the diagram is showing us the different ways that you've consumed uh, the the media um, categories of television, video games, literature, podcasts, movies, and music. Mm-hmm. as different experiences through your life. And uh, what I find fat what I find fascinating about the diagram is that each of these different categories diagrammatically is representing themselves slightly different and they have different epicenters throughout your life. So I, I guess what I'm immediately seeing is say television as a series of of almost like radiating lines is showing me that you've had a completely different experience with television than say podcasting, which is really just a small cluster towards the most recent kind of moment in your life. So could you, could Mm -hmm. we engage this diagram to just talk about how media has influenced your life in these kind of epicenters and, and get into the way that they're kind of diagrammatically represented? Yeah. So, um, that kind of evolved, as the process went along, that wasn't originally a plan, right? I started with just like scatter plotting stuff in the same, you know, this white dot and then trying to see where things aggregated. But then I realized like um, some forms of media, right? For like, for example, television is something that you don't just view once, right? You watch a TV show for sometimes a decade, right? Like think of Game of Thrones now. It's one of the culturally defining elements of our entire generation for the last seven years, mm-hmm. right? So, and that kind of shared experience is, is 
becoming less and less of a thing now, right? Yeah, it used to be soap operas, and then um, I think uh, before Game of Thrones, there was Lost, which yeah. was like uh, everybody would have Lost parties, and then yeah. now we have Game of Thrones, and yeah. And even and especially with, we can, you know, we always talk about this Netflix culture and, and isolated media uh, engagement. You know, there's less and less of those shared experiences now, right? But television is definitely, I thought it needed to be plotted with a, um, a, a line because it truly is that, right? Um, you know, a movie you watch once, a television you could watch once a week for 10 years, right? So it's a different, it, you have to acknowledge the fact that that's different, right? Um, and over the course of this diagram, I started to make central line or a central core, kind of similar to the Ward Shelley central tree trunk mm-hmm. to show that some um, types of media were more core to my existence. But um, like, for example, in movies, there's kind of a fanned out, um, there's kind of a more kind of, you know, it's a fanned out tiered system, right? And I think that's because I um, I would tend to take movies more seriously in my, like, in my canon than, say, television, right? So I didn't think there just needed to be one central core, but there needed to be like three branches on either side that kind of showed how close to my core identity that that is, right? Um, and I was also thinking as I went along a white, the white dot versus the colored dot, um, a white dot means that I, uh, let me zoom in there real quick. So a white dot means that I engage that media after, uh, after it was first released Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. a, and a green dot mean, or a color dot means I engaged it the year it came out. So, you know, as you go along, certain, you know, certain types of media actually um, are more or less like that, right? Like movies, it's pretty 50-50, right? You watch the movies that come out that year um, and, you know, you you kind of add two or three to your canon as you go along. But you're going to watch like mostly old movies or like half of the movies you watch are going to be something that you just meant to watch and it was recommended to you or your 101 list of movies to watch, you're going to watch a classic, right? So... Whereas something like um, like podcasts, you know, they you kind of they come out and you listen to them. You're not you're not really listening to old podcasts, or maybe people will one day. Um, or or sometimes maybe they're at episode fifty and you binge the catch up, but right. then you are engaging the 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 presence of the podcast at that point. Right. Or like a um, like books. You know, there's just so many books in the history of humanity that you know. Yeah, you'll read a, a new book that comes out. Um, you know, but a lot of times you're just playing catch up, right? Like I've really had a reading renaissance like in the last year, about two or three years of my life. And like 90% of those books are books that were released anywhere from the last 200 years, you know? So, you know, it's, it's, um, and in television, it's like that too, right? You kind of watch the show as it kind of, as it happens. But I think there's, like we talked about before, there's a balance. You have to balance that part of your media engagement as well, right? New and old to kind of always have a kind of a balanced um, kind of consumption right there, right? You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, like, I, I, it's, I'm glad that you described what the two colors mean. Yeah. Because at first I thought that um, the colors just meant that they were more important mm-hmm. to you. Yes, yeah, cen- central is more important. Yeah, yeah, central is more important. But I think I think that is a very important distinction to make. That some media is consumed at the moment that it's released, and some media <clears throat> is consumed 
um, in archive mm-hmm. in, 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 um, and I think the, the, the media that you consume from the archive speaks to how significant the media is to our culture mm-hmm. itself. Cause if we, if we look at books, um, you've described this kind of, uh, kind of literary renaissance, uh, that you, you've had, um, where, the most recent years in the way that you've consumed consumed books, it's it looks like it's ninety percent existing. Yeah, I'm, books. Pl- I'm playing a lot of catch up. As you can see, I didn't read much during high school and college, <laughs> just because I was like doing other stuff, you know. So now I'm like, oh man, I have my whole life to catch up on, kind of thing. But, but I'm I'm like so fascinated by if there's going to be a moment where video games. I think I'm starting that right now. Yeah, Zelda is the game that really brought me back. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but I'm wondering if, um, uh, so, uh, what would be what would be an example of this? Um, if you say read. Um, uh, um, the Game of Thrones novels as a teenager, mm-hmm. um, as a first entry point into medieval fantasy, um, Game of Thrones might lead you to Lord of the Rings now nowadays in that the most recent um, narrative experience then points you backwards down the genre. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if video games are eventually going to get to that point where... Um, when you play the most recent Zelda that comes out, it causes you to then make your way back down the lineage yeah. of of um, the history of Zelda to experience that very first moment where Link walks down a series of steps and an old man says, take this as dangerous out there, and he hands him a sword, mm-hmm. which is really just harkens back to this larger series of narrative experiences, um, which speaks to the hero's journey. And and we get into like why um, maybe the success or failure of video games is the success or failure of its ability to tell the hero's journey, something like that. But but the the thing we're talking about right now is that maybe video games might get to a point where the most recent video game causes you to then have a renaissance going back into the archives, very similar to how we're catching up mm-hmm. with with books yeah and i think it can also go across media types as well like um <clears throat> i've definitely have been engaging a lot more a lot more actual fantasy and sci-fi in my life in the last like four or five years compared to before and i think some of those origins were always there but like you know say i play zelda and now i'm listening to audiobooks that are kind of more fantastical and now i'm lis- now i'm reading books that are um you know it's hard sci-fi or you know then i jump into watching more movies that are like so you know one 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 simple game or movie can like trigger tons of interest around all different types of media not just like back in that one type of media it's like in that entire genre right and another so another thing i would i just thought of was music um in the bottom left there and how early like we talked about earlier like you know i don't really have any music that still resonates with me until i'm about like 11 or 12, you know, some of the, like, you know, but even where like video games, for example, I have, um, games when I was like five or six that I still would like to play or, um, Toy Story, for example, I watched when I was like four years old and like I would now Toy Story 4 is going to come out and we're probably all going to go see it in theaters. And like, it's, you know, it's, um, it's still part of my life, but music, like you really like back to this idea of the brain you were talking about earlier, like you really, I feel like people don't really get a music taste until they're like early teens that starts to resemble your adult t- 
taste, you know, because it's always like kid songs or like now here hits or whatever the pop cool. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's not like a because um, mm-hmm. you can't, you know, I don't know. What is it about music that makes it that way? You know, why? You know what I mean? I, I can't really wrap my head around it. Like do our kids not able to in, like take music that seriously at a young age or is society not letting kids take mu- music that serious or i guess you just kids just don't spend as much time critically engaging with music at a young age right i i i i would almost point back to the to what we were talking about about um how the brain develops mm-hmm. and what part of our brain are developing at at what part of uh, our, our adolescence, because I, I almost feel like as a child we listen to not lyrical music but melody-driven mm-hmm. music that's about kind of calming, mm-hmm. um, uh, about curating or, a calming presence, or like playfulness or yeah. something like that. Yeah, and and then I think like our teen years are filled with very emotionally driven music, and then. Um, maybe like later on it's it's that calms down and you fall into like a particular um genre but i i like whenever i think about music i i have this weird moment where i feel like all music is tied to um what was uh uh uh, gilgamesh Mm -hmm. so um the epic of gilgamesh the epic of gilgamesh so the epic of gilgamesh um as as a way to kind of summarize it in 20 seconds uh, you have a alpha male individual who is um, <clears throat> terrorizing the forest, and they send a fair maiden into the forest to uh, essentially calm the wild beast through the sound of her voice and and through, I guess, her her um, like feminine uh, presence. And and it's the whole conceptual idea is that music or sound has mm. this ability to to calm or tame the wild beast and i think that music in particular as a as a media influence speaks to the way that we use me- music to touch our emotions mm-hmm. and and to either um uh, uh kind of light the fire of of our kind of a motive presence or to like bring us back down. I, I, I like, um, I had like a weird moment where I was dating a girl and we were watching a, we were watching a, a very like dramatic movie. And after the movie ended, she goes, Hey, can we listen to this like song really fast? And I was like, <laughs> okay, that's fine. And we, li- Sounds awkward. and, and we, um, <laughs> uh, we listened to, I don't know, it was like a woman singer and it was like a very calm melody or something like that. And I was like, why did, why did you want to listen to that song? She's like, I don't know, I just felt really tense and I needed something to like re- <laughs> reset like how I how I felt. That's a red flag. Maybe, yeah, maybe. I mean, we're not together, but um, <laughs> so. But, but maybe it's that music, it's like it's like a, a rectangle, a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square. Yes. Music is also in everything else. It's in television, it's in podcasts, it's in it's in movies, it's in video games, it's in everything. But movies aren't in music, you know what I mean? So, like, maybe because music is such a um, universal thing that it's you don't seriously engage it as a singular entity until a little bit later in your life. Mm-hmm. Like, if you if you 
you had like a six-year-old kid that's like super into like Minecraft or something, that's really, that's fine. Or like if they're really into, um, you know, like SpongeBob or something. But if you had a six-year-old kid that was like super into like Bruce Springsteen or something, you'd be like, what the hell? Like this, like your kid's going to sit down and play video games for a couple hours. But if you have a kid that sits down and just like listens to music, like for six hours, like in the, with their headphones on, that'd be like a little weird. You know what I mean? Like it's a little unusual. Yeah. Do you, do you know the hierarchy of art? Or no, have you heard of that? So um, if you take like an entry, uh, an entry level art theory class, one of the early things that they, they talk about is um, the hierarchy of art subjectness. And they break it down as the complexity of the subject matter itself. So the lowest form of art subjectness would be the still life. Mm. Um, that would be, say, like the painted vase. Um, the next level is uh, landscape because it talks about um, spatial conditions and also the emotive qualities of um, a landscape as a ephemeral place. Then the next um, uh, level, I, uh, and I think there's either four or five levels, and I'm going to butcher them, but um, the next level is um, portraiture, self-portraits. Um, that's essentially a still life, but it has emotive qualities mm -hmm. because you have uh, a, a person in it. And then the highest is um, uh, narrative landscapes. Mm -hmm. And that would be mm -hmm. the, um, if, you, if you thought of, say, any art from the Renaissance or the Baroque, let, let's use the School of Athens, for example. Yeah. There that's is, what I was thinking as well. <laughs> yeah, that, that has the landscape yeah. of the... Um, uh, the temple hallway yeah. with the Romanesque arches, and there's a series of figures. Yeah, and like the 50 greatest philosophers of the world. And it's like every single one of those figures has an emotive response within the landscape. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so there's this idea that um, there is a hierarchy to subjectness in mm -hmm. how things are held within artwork. And I think what you're talking about with music is music may be like the still life or the the portraiture, it's probably closer to the portrait in that it is a um, it is a it's a it, singular kind of it's, dimensional it's, it's, thing. Like, exactly. So maybe that makes the case for video games to be the highest form of media art because you're not only engaging with sound and visuals over a long span of time, but you're literally changing it with your your like insertion of the way you move the character. So it's the, it's inherently the most complex form of media. I, 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 you know I, what I'm saying? Yes. The more, the more kind of, I follow that logic. I think the thing that I would want to bring up as an interesting example is the fact that in your chart, uh, you didn't have live theater mm -hmm. as, as a category. Yeah. Cause I, yeah, I mean, growing up, I didn't go to much, but mm -hmm. I have recently more. Yeah. But I would, I would make this, um, parallel to, um, the difference between consuming a show versus uh, like a TV show on your TV versus, um, uh, experiencing a movie in a theater versus experiencing a play mm -hmm. in, in an opera house or, or in like live theater. And I think it's the, the kind of the range of um, kind of a physical and intellectual engagement that each of those are, are giving you um, by, by like the, the amount of layers you're able to experience simultaneously. Um, it, that's a good point though. Cause like the, the, um, sorry if I cut you off. No, go ahead. The, um, 
the f- we've we've been to the Kennedy Center like four or five times recently. We saw like um, the Fan of the Opera, Into the Woods, Sound of Music, a couple other ones, and Into the uh, one more. Um, anyway, well, probably didn't, that one I probably didn't enjoy as much. But like those, like Fan of the Opera, I like. I immediately put in my like canon of life experiences. Yes, and, like four of the five, you know, live shows I've seen, I like, you know, Sound of Music. Like it's gonna be like part of my life now. Whereas like one out of every 20 shows you watch is probably in your life canon, right? So it's like, that's speaking to the hype. If you're in the theater, it's like you're more likely to to receive the um, the full intent of that art form because it's so engaging on that level, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of what you're getting at. Exactly. That, that there's, I, I would almost say I share that same, um, uh, that same, uh, what's what's the word? I'm, I'm at the point where I'm like losing words. Sentiment. But yes, I yes, I like I share that sentiment in that every um, show that I've ever seen at the Kennedy Center is in my canon, um, it, to a degree of like ninety five to a hundred percent. Yeah. But I but of the movies I've seen on Netflix, I probably only have five percent of the movies I've seen on Netflix that are in my life yeah. canon. It's about your personal investment. And there's something to be said for personally going there. You're much yes. more likely to, to movie you see in theaters because you're making the decision to go and engage with it. You're much more likely to kind of kind of view it as something you want to be a part of your life. And you're paying for it. You know, theater, you're paying to go, you're dressing up nice. It's like the event that surrounds that that media. Uh, engagement as like that adds to that overall experience. So I think I think um, do you have any additional things you'd like to talk about? I think we're kind of maybe coming to the end of this. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is like growing growing with a franchise as your as like your life goes along. Yeah, because like and how that's marketed specifically towards people. Like um, we mentioned Toy Story earlier, and like I um, was literally the same age as Andy my whole life. Mm-hmm. So like when I was, you know, six years old or whatever that I was Andy's age and like Toy Story three, when he went to college, I was going to college that year. And I don't know in Toy Story four, if he's going to be, um, even in it, I have no idea. I've just seen like the one, the one, um, trailer that has like buzz in like the, in like a, a amusement park. Have you seen that? Yeah. I've, I've seen like, um, the, the trailer poster, like Bo Peeps doing like a karate kick or something. Right. Yeah. So I wonder, and in the, so the end of Toy Story three, he gives his toys to the little girl sitting on the front lawn. Yes. And it's almost like he's passing the torch to the younger audience to like specifically commercially engage that younger audience again. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I wonder like if Andy's going to be a 26 or 27 year old guy in this new movie or he's just going to be gone and it's the same thing with the harry potter series of chronic or chronicles of narnia where the kids grow up and you, now like the harry potter stuff like clearly they're marketing fantastic beasts to people that initially read the books right so like you know um so there's, there's that's one way it's growing with the franchise and being identifying with those characters and constantly re-engaging it but then there's something like game of thrones which i started engaging at a later age um but I, I don't, um, you know, I don't have that like early nostalgic love for Game of Thrones like I do for something like Toy Story or something like that, right? So I wonder, you know, if, um, and I wonder if you have any like similar, you probably have some of the similar experiences I have because we're like the same age, but, you know, is that something that um, is, is specifically like targeted from a media production standpoint to keep that audience and retain that audience with the same product? 
basically, and 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 know that who know your audience grows with the media. It's something that's going to keep getting reinvented. Yeah, I th- I think the latest example that we've seen with this is in the Star Wars franchise. Yeah, when Han Solo shows back up in uh, the Force Awakens to literally pass the lightsaber torch mm-hmm. on to. Um, what's her name? Ren? Ray. Ray. Ray and, and the new younger generation. And, and just as, um, with Andy, he was a six-year-old passing it on to, uh, that he was a six-year-old that transforms into an adult and he passes it back to a six-year-old. We see the characters in the Star Wars franchise as 20 something, uh, individuals mm-hmm. who become parents who pass it back to 20 some individuals. And we see one uh, um, droid pass the torch back to another droid. Um, and, and so I, I think they are using it as a way, I, I think it is very intentional. Um, I would say the other way that this is done, uh, if, if that represents the uh, passing the torch backwards, I would say we also see media um, like the Shrek films not passing the torch backwards, but curating the, the, the content in a way that both the younger generation and the older generation can experience it simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So that as a 10-year-old, you can uh, laugh at Farquaad because he's this short little um, uh, like goofy character who lives in a tall castle and is like complaining and his name sounds funny. Uh, but then you become a... Uh, 17 or a 20 or or like you have your own kids and then you see him as like a sexually repressed character living (laughs) in a in a tall tower that's like the the symbolic like um, phallic object and and he's he's chasing these green characters and like envy and Mm. and and so in in a way the shrek series is a great example of building in a um, a generational torch passing within the same media. And that's more ideal, right? Like creating just dynamic characters that can resonate across generations kind of thing. Maybe. Um, I I would say that like what I love about the Harry Potter series is that the characters start off very young and innocent. Mm -hmm. You feel attached to them as they get older. Yeah. Yeah. The the stories get darker and they Mm -hmm. get, they deal with more mature issues. And I would say like Harry Potter is, is, um, great as a story that you grow up with um and and star wars and toy story are movies that are passing torches back Mm -hmm. and like shrek is a great example of a movie that builds both experiences in at the same time so i I think i think like media is becoming very smart about the way that it is building um a repeat experience either um, for a same person experiencing it over and over again, yeah, uh, or it's meant to be passed backwards. Well, yeah, and a lot of it is, you know, like for example, um, with like Modern Family, like the uh, sorry, that was a bad transition, but I have a thought. Uh-huh. Um, like the characters, if you have like a animated film versus like an or animated thing versus an actual people people like are going to get older right yes, so you have to build yeah. it into the timeline like modern family like the, the kids get older in the later yes. episodes i just they're kind of weird like i like the what's like the the kind of chubby hispanic kid like i oh, whatever he is yeah. like i like him much more when he's like witty as a young kid now he's like a teenager and he's like still with the same humor but it, it doesn't really age that well 
Whereas like, um, you know, and they're clearly gonna, they're clearly changing the, um, arc of the story because the, they're, they're gonna, the whole family is, um, they're engaging with different problems and different issues as they go along, right? They're, you know, when the kids are young, they're messing, dealing with crazy kids' birthday parties. And when the kids are older, they're dealing with you know, teenage issues and all this stuff and getting out of the house. And, but like something like, um, like SpongeBob, for example, it's basically, it's been like 15 years of the same exact yeah. thing. Bart, Bart Simpson has stayed Bart Simpson. Yeah, Family Guy. For, for same 25 thing. years. Right. Same, Family Guy, same exact target market yeah. constantly, right? But, but Manny and Modern Family has physically grown into a larger body. Yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, and in, so we were talking about like in Toy Story, they did a mix of that where they had an animated character, but the character also grew. So, you know... Um, I think if you have like, for example, like an animated or like a video, like with a video game or something like that, you can, you can make the same, like with Mario, you can keep animating Mario the same exact way all the time. And the market is whoever wants to engage in Mario can, right? Um, and I, I guess that's a new wrinkle I hadn't thought about till just now. I, I think the reason why I really love the Zelda series is the very, the very first series is, um, it's dangerous out there. Take this sword um, find the princess. And, Simple. And it doesn't and it doesn't matter who the princess is. You're just saving the princess. Then in Zelda 2, um, Zelda is very present in the first moment that the video game starts. You start in a very snow white um, stylized room where Princess Zelda is, is asleep and there is this um, uh, the, the, the princess is no longer disembodied. She's of personhood. Then when you get into um, Ocarina of Time, um, Zelda takes a very active role in assisting Link in providing tools for mm-hmm. the success of Link itself, but still in a very like subordinate, servitudinal um, kind of character trope way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with the most recent Zelda in, in Breath of the Wild, um, Zelda plays this, um, she immediately is presented as this um, savior character who prevents Link from dying out on a battlefield puts him in a, in a chamber um, to like heal his wounds and sets him up for success. Mm-hmm. So immediately she's empowered as this character who can save Link as much as Link can save her. And in all the flashbacks, she takes a very active voice in, um, in, in leading the kind of um, uh, the, the tactical expression that like all the characters are, are, are going after. And so we, like we see Zelda evolving with the, um, the, the cultural narrative Mm -hmm. that, 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 that we're all reinterpreting as, as we are, as, as we're redefining what it means to both be, uh, male and female and not, um, subordinate, but, um, uh, be a more complimentary, kind of complimentary kind of, or like collaborative, yeah. like society, yeah, yeah. like the character is evolving with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that seems like a, the best way to do it is to create like rich, diverse characters that grow with the, with society considered, not just like outside of society. Cause so, so like the media, like truly different types of media, like truly have a real parallel with like the actual real world that we live in. Mm hmm. So I think I think that's a good place to stop. Um, yeah, I agree. I I would say that uh, I I'm personally very um, fascinated with this um, particular topic of um, 
of of media as as having say pattern languages or mm-hmm. or having things that we can engage in. I know you're developing a episode on media laugh tracks. Mm-hmm. I think I think what I uh, am very interested in doing is this episode being the entry point mm-hmm. for a series of studies that we're planning to do. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, there's just so many doors that open with this. I mean, the media tree itself is just one of the, was this an object or an artifact like we'd like to say to, to help explain how we engage media. And, um, I think, yeah, the laugh track, um, I think we could kind of devote a separate, it's one of the separate studies and one among many separate studies we could do. And we'll have to talk more about like what we actually want to do, but, um, that's one very potent example that me and you have identified that, um, can expose one of these patterns or rifts, especially across generations and across um, modalities of of engaging media. That like it's just one of the one of the almost like uh, factual proofs that show how our media engagement has changed. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, <clears throat> some things are very obvious, right? Like the Netflix Netflix versus HBO model of releasing one show a week or releasing one season at a time. That's a very obvious difference. Um, compared to like, you know, when a, everything used to come on on television on Monday nights and everyone in the world was watching MASH or something like that. Clearly, that's a very obvious um, change, but but the actual effects of that change or what drove that change to happen is something that's a, it's a, that's, that's a space intellectually that we can really break apart and really kind of start to investigate and ask the questions why and then how that actually affects our society and how that affects our youth culture. Um, you know, now like one of the whole other things we were talking about is like isolated versus group engagement in media, right? Like kids now stream with their headphones in by themselves a lot more than ever before because it wasn't possible technologically, right? Mm-hmm. So there's something to be said for, you know, my family used to watch Lost, right? Like, and this is probably my last thought. And like we used to watch um, every episode and I think I was in seventh grade when it came out and I was in 12th grade when it ended. So from you know, ages 12 to 18, I was watching a show with my parents. Um, and I, I don't know if that would happen again right now. I don't know if many 17 year olds were, are watching law or like watching, um, I don't know, game of Thrones with their parents. They might both, they might watch it separately or like maybe they just watch it by themselves and then you're at the dinner table and you know, they see you watching game of Thrones for hours and hours on end, but if they don't also watch it, it's going to be hard to connect over that stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's a whole other um, thing we could study is shared experiences across generations and what, what's happening now. So the, yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole space here that we, we want to be, um, and obviously intimately involved in studying. So that's, there's definitely more stuff to come. Yep. Yeah. Totally agreed. Hey everyone. Ken and I just wanted to thank you again for listening to the episode. The Table Sessions podcast is produced and edited by me, Austin Raymond, and Ken Filler, and is a product of The Table Sessions Media, the collaborative platform for audio, visual, and written content. Our theme music was created by Dan Filler. You can find more from Dan on bandcamp.com, such as his album, As the Soil Turns Red. If you like what you heard, you can visit our website, thetablesessions.com, to check out our full range of content. You can also follow us on Instagram at Table Sessions, where we post photos and content from each episode. 
Also, if you'd like to support our cause in more tangible ways, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the table sessions for exclusive updates and more. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you again next episode.